0: Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ellie Hanley. So this episode follows on from our last episode with Rob Law. And you might remember that we talked about how large groups of councils across the state of Victoria are starting to work together to bring in 100% renewable energy for their operations. And they're installing electric vehicle charging stations in small towns right across, which is great for the electric vehicle transition that we all need to make. So the group of councils that my shire is part of also includes the city of Mildura, which is over 400 kilometres to the north of us. My interest in Mildura has been growing lately. It's a regional city that sits right on the mighty Murray River. The Murray is Australia's longest river, famous for paddle steamers, and it's part of the Murray-Darling River Basin system, which reaches from Queensland to South Australia, and much of Victoria and New South Wales is part of this river basin as well. Another thing to know is that the region is referred to as the Mali. This word is thought to originate from the word Mali, meaning water in the Wemba Wemba language, an Aboriginal language of Southern New South Wales and Victoria, and has subsequently been used to describe many types of plants that grow across this region. In its natural state, this region is a floodplain. It is very flat and very dry when not in flood. It is technically semi-arid, and it has sand dunes and huge dust storms. The Murray River is one of the only sources of water for this region, and the soil is naturally very sandy and salty. And despite being so far inland, it is very low-lying and in the past has been connected to the ocean. Colonisation and the engineering structures of barricades, locks and weirs along the length of the Murray River has recently controlled the river's flow and prevented the wide-scale flooding events that the environment is adapted to have. Add on top of that, the large amounts of water drained from the river each year for agricultural purposes. And you have a very complicated region to manage, both socially and environmentally. And I've been up to Mildura twice this year, and I've collected interviews each time I went. So why Mildura? According to climate projections, as climate change progresses, my region and my town may have a climate much more like Mildura's in the coming decades. So that's 400 kilometres closer to the equator and Castlemaine will soon be like that. And that's with moderate climate change, not extreme. And I'd also heard about the huge solar farms going in up there. And that was enough to pique my curiosity about this city so far away from us. So country towns and cities do have a reputation of being more conservative and a little resistant to change. Castlemaine is a bit of an anomaly in terms of how active and progressive many of its residents are. So I was curious to see how climate action is going in a place like Mildura. So my first visit this year was with a friend and we headed up in March, which is at the tail end of a long, hot summer. So everything in central Victoria is dry and yellow and the cool weather and rains have not usually arrived in March to take the edge off the heat or the dusty, dry, bushfire prone kind of weather. We're all tired of the colours yellow and brown by then and we're longing for a bit of rain. And what really surprised me when we reached Mildura was how green so many of their lawns are. The interview I'm going to share with you today was taken back in March with Mildura's mayor, Jason Modica and their counsellor for Environment and Sustainability, Jodie Reynolds. We talk about the environment and social issues. Specifically, we talk about water and the solar boom that's happening up there. And then in the next few weeks, I will have more episodes from the Mildura region to share with you. As regular listeners will know, I always acknowledge country at the start of the show. This time, I would like to acknowledge both the Dja, Dja Wurrung, whose land I live on, and where this episode has been edited and released from, and also the First Nations people of the Milawa Mali. so that's up in Mildura, where these interviews were recorded and the country that we're discussing in these episodes. So the people and language groups in that area include the Barkenji, the Lachi Lachi, the Wurgai and the Karenji. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Sovereignty was never ceded. Salt salt, of the earth. Salt. 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 Grassroots. 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 Salt of the earth people. Grass- grass- grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app, or at saltgrasspodcast.com. I'm interested in the fact that the Mildura City Council has recently declared a climate emergency. How recent was that?
1: That was on the 26th of February last year, where we called for that, and it was very much driven by current Deputy Mayor Helen Healy. But I think there's always been quite an interesting pedigree of... Of looking at the environment in the region but it just took a little while for it to get there because of probably the more of the conservative attitudes in parts of rural Australia.
2: I think that's changing actually. I think that we're finding that there's a lot more people that are keen to see those kinds of issues move forward and and keen to make sure that we're part of that uh, bigger movement that's happening over the world.
0: I feel like the declaration of climate emergency is something that's only just started to happen and councils one by one are picking them up and In Australia, especially, I really feel like because of our federal government's attitudes to climate change, there's more and more action happening at local levels Mm -hmm. as citizens, but also local councils are going. Okay, well, we're not going to get help from above. What are we going to (laughs) do? Yeah, I think
1: you know, Miriam Wilkinson's the. Carbon Club. I haven't read it, but it's a, it it talks about the Australian Mr. Hill, the Environment Minister, Minister going to Kyoto in '97 and and basically moving away from embracing renewables for for Australia and getting in lockstep with with the old methods of generating energy. So it's quite long, and you know I think we've worked really hard as a council, the previous one, and even the one before, to some extent, to really try and work out how great it is for this region. We've got the longest amount of sunshine and there's no mountains on either side. I did a little bit of work in the federal election and run into people from Europe who were doing developments down south and they're saying, why aren't you going at a million miles an hour? So it's really, it's really changing because it just makes sense, particularly on the dollar level.
0: Yeah, that's really great to hear. I notice up here one of the differences between up here in Mildura and down in central Victoria and Mount Alexandershire is that it feels up here like the council's really leading on climate change whereas in Castlemaine and surrounds there's a great groundswell of community action that is then forcing the council to take action <laughs> which i th- I find that really interesting that difference
2: well i think actually that the community here is really active and I, I think you see that in how they voted this round so the community's actually voted a progressive council in one that they know that's going to drive those issues forward they've been active on the ground for a long time and i think that that's reflected in exactly how progressive we have been we're actually punching above our weight here you know we were the 30th local government in Victoria to declare a climate emergency. So that's actually pretty good for a council coming from a fairly conservative background. It does come from the people. They might not necessarily be the most vocal and the most uh, visual groups, but they are definitely having an impact here.
1: To comment on that, too, the horticultural and agriculture, whenever a farmer can save a few bucks, because it's such a difficult business to be in, with the you know the bull and bear markets of whatever you're growing, they really have taken to it as well. And there's a couple of other things that I find really interesting. My wife and I participated in the second group buy scheme in 2010 in Muldura, which 300 people got together, collaborated, and bought 300 units and of solar panels and put them on our house at 66 cents a kilowatt hour, so they're only like 2 kilowatt units, but also $6 billion worth of investment over the last 8 or 9 years of large scale industrial solar from sort of Red Cliffs to and I think Mars have just bought into Chiamel and a fully solar. So there's two things going on. We do have, a, I'll use the word again, a great pedigree in people putting solar on their roofs but also big money comes here to try and offset their footprint or try and buy renewable energy. As Roscano says, in the middle of the day in Muldura, you're just going to have the cheapest energy in the world in the next three to five years. It'll be huge.
0: It's amazing. Yeah. So I, I was really interested to come up here because I know about these big solar farms going up and I wasn't aware of how much household solar and rooftop solar was going in, but it sounds like there's been some really great initiatives to get people to get rooftop solar on can you talk a bit more about the rooftop solar and the household?
1: Yeah, well, there was the two group buy schemes and then they were very well patronised. So everybody got on early. Some people doubled up and ended up with four kilowatts at 66 cents an hour and they're still still making money out of it, which I don't know whether that's the best way to do it, but that's the way it happened back then. And then I have lots of friends, I'm a tradesman, I'm a Tyler by trade, so I know a lot of sparkies who have moved their business across to solar because they'll come and do an audit and they'll say, well, if you reglaze your windows and if you change your washing machine or your fridge and uh, then you get a 7.8 kilowatt system and you only run stuff during the day, it's just going to pay for itself uh, really, really quickly.
2: And look, Council's been really proactive with making sure that all the Council infrastructure is equally as solar friendly and environmentally friendly as well. I in- think
1: we've got about 600 kilowatts on all our, all our buildings, so saves quite a lot of year, uh, quite a lot of money. And that came in that came in early too. So that was there when I got onto council in sixteen.
2: Absolutely. But the, the limitation that we have though is the Kerrang interchange. So we've we've got, you know, all this fantastic renewable energy possibility here but it's limited by how much we can pump out. And like we, we could be export- so ex- exporting Exporting yeah. Exporting the energy is what we're limited by. But we, I believe that the Kerrang! interchange is high on both state and federal agendas to get that sorted out and get that done. Once we can get that done, this area it will be one of the, you know, solar power... Ener- energy f- for Australia. We can be exporting this to New South Wales and, and to other parts of Victoria. What are some of
0: the objections people have had to large scale solar farms and what's the reality of them?
1: Well, there's there's no there hasn't really been any objections yeah, right. because they are on broad acreage farms off the road and you can hardly see them. So mm. an average wheat farm here might be 7,000 acres. So the, the the old infrastructure that went through their land that they sort of had to drive their tractors around when they sowed or harvested, Karadok is 700 and Cayamal K- is a million panels so there's really been no pushback there was a a, a drive to put 22,000 panels in two three different spots in an old rural residential area that created huge kickback and the council voted against it because we believe like any sort of planning orderly planning should be where it at least affects people where it can give some good returns for the farmers because it actually levels out those badges if you can rent your land to a large multinational I remember talking to the finance guy from Germany at Caradoc, and he said Oh, it just makes sense on paper why wouldn't why wouldn't you do it so the one thing one of the big concerns that's been raised over and over again in our municipality because there are so many is what will we do with those panels when the end of life comes along and we've been assured that you know all the glass and all the aluminium can be reused or recycled and they're working in Europe on trying to be able to recycle the actual silicon yeah the electronics and the silicon based print in, in under the glass.
2: I think what they're finding is that the uh, solar panels actually have a much longer life than they ever anticipated they would have. You I mean, the, the panel itself does start to reduce the amount of electricity that it puts out over time, but the solar panels that were put in 30 years ago are still producing energy. So there is not a great you know stockpile of used uh, solar panels anywhere waiting to be recycled yet, and the technology is catching up. So that's good news, I think.
0: Yeah, that's great. And it's good to hear that they can be recycled at the end of their life to at least a degree. You mentioned that the farmers get some effectively rent for having the solar panels on there. And that is really good because we hear so many stories of farmers, especially as climate change comes in and Australia gets drier and it's harder to produce. So that sounds like a really good win-win for the farmers as well. And they still have enough land to actually do their business and farm.
1: Totally. Well, and then once again, it becomes a business decision for them. They map out what they're going to lose. They calculate, you know, X amount of return a year for lease for the land, X amount on a, you know, average out your years as a grain grower and then make the decision. But not many of them get the choice because that the footprint of where the power lines go, they're only ever going to go that way. It's if it's upgraded, like Roscano says, if you could put large distribution wires connecting the capitals or even overseas, that's when you can get your secondary level kick of just generating massive amounts of power during the day. It flips the old model on its head completely.
0: Yeah. So if you're listening from overseas, I don't know where Latrobe Valley is, Victoria. it's southeast corner yeah. of Victoria. And so it's a massive coal fired power station. And so the electricity is running from that southeastern point, north and west and across the rest of Australia. And so the infrastructure itself, can't flow the other way is that what you're saying
1: can but just not on the not on the volume and because it is intermittent everything needs to be upgraded a little bit to be able to deal with it with that intermittency and how the power comes in.
2: Yeah, and because it's centralised from that point, the power is set up to deliver electricity to everywhere from that centralised point, whereas what Jason is saying about um, tipping the old system on its head, the system is now going to be decentralised. It's going to be a network of smaller, more nimble power supply areas. And so you see massive wind
0: farms down on the coast in western Victoria and you see massive solar farms up here in the north where you get the most sun and yeah, we're looking at biodigesters and other sort of circular economy models of generating power locally in central Victoria. It also means that, you know, then it is spread out. So if any one of any one site fails for any reason, you've still got power to the majority of the state.
1: So it's, a, it's almost a version of a micro grid everywhere, you know, and there's even a great wind north of Horsham too. So there's there's levels of where you go and that sort of matches in with our solar credentials and their wind credentials.
2: And you add batteries into that equation and I think one of the things that people worry about when they think about renewable energy is, like, well, what are we going to be doing at night time? The sun doesn't shine at night. Yeah. Well, batteries are there f- for exactly that purpose. So they are coming on so quickly. The price is coming down, they're becoming more available to the everyday person in their homes the same way that solar panels are. So once again, with government support and with community driving that demand for that technology, it'll be in everybody's homes soon.
1: I always started talking about energy sovereignty, so it's not just about the change to renewables, whether it's green hydrogen, solar or wind, it's about retrofitting every house. So every if every house is a net producer of energy and consumes as little as it can, you're actually changing the whole dynamic of how we look at energy and how you would build a house in the first place. So me it's a it's a tiered understanding of how we consume, why we consume, and who controls the way we might think about consumption and I think that flicks back to the federal government's long commitment and support of renewables. I don't have a problem with that in, in the past because that's what it was. It's clearly changed in batteries. As Jody said, Hornsdale in South Australia has been a phenomenon that, that Mr Tesla put in. I'd love to hang out with him Elon for the Musk. afternoon. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Mr Musk. So <laughs> but also Ganawara has put in a massive battery too, which is on the Kerrang link. So there's already those little pulses or little tendrils of, of green. Is that too much of a pun? No, I like um, it. I like <laughs> little it. tendrils of <laughs> green. <laughs> that show, but, but it has to me, and I'm being really parochial about this, it has to be bound to how we live. You, know? mm-hmm. you want a beautiful house, you want an open, it doesn't have to be big or large, but it needs to be that energy sovereignty and giving you choice and not being dictated to by who may or may not control the infrastructure.
0: I think that's a really good point. And with climate change there's this idea that oh it's going to get it's going to get hotter and drier and we're all going to want to use air conditioning more. But if the air conditioning is running off coal then we're making you know, climate change worse. <laughs> so this idea of everyone having their own little power plant on their roof and being backed up by these bigger projects that are scattered across the state and across the country really makes sense. I actually
1: do experiments on my own house. <laughs> We've got solar air modules. Have you ever heard of them? They're little one metre squares that are 80 mil thick and they have a black base and they have one solar panel. So not connected connected to electricity at all. So in Muldura between May and August, when you get a 19 or 20 degree day, it'll pump we've got five of them on the roof and it's got a little fan it'll pump you know 23 degree heat into the house all day which stops us using the wood and then they also have a a solar whiz which if you if you keep the cavity between your your, the inside ceiling and your tiles or your or your timber or your steel if you keep that at a constant level the whiz sucks out all the, the cold or hot air in your roof which insulates your house on another level as well so there's a whole level of technology, old school technology out there that actually gives you the opportunity to make your footprint a bit smaller and it costs less in the long run.
2: Yeah, so what Jason's talking about there is a passive yep. energy, yep. you know. So you're actually using the energy of the earth or the environment or the of the air to to passively regulate your home. But another way of doing that is by um, main, making sure that your cities are green mm. and having canopy and having enough trees to make sure that your homes are shaded, for example, and your streets are shaded and that you're um, creating an environment that you don't necessarily need to heat or cool too much. I think that um, the Mildura Council has Leading in that area as well so we've got a, a green and tree canopy policy and, and plan that we're working on at the moment and yeah I think that that was going to make a big difference for Mildura too. In 2018 we were involved with the Cool It project with seven other local government um, councils in the region. With small towns in the region that are particularly exposed to increasing daytime heat I mean Mildura is one of them and with climate change approaching us that is not going to change so it, it's basically about increasing the canopy in streets and parks and gardens i think we're as low as seven percent in some towns uh seven percent coverage okay so there's not a
0: huge amount of trees
2: giving shade correct so what i've seen in other towns and i think sydney's doing this now they've embarked on a huge project 25 percent coverage is what they're aiming for they're going to do it over five years and they're spending you know 1.5 million dollars to do it so we are in the process of it, seeing what that looks like for Mildura and making sure that we get some uh, the similar sort of coverage here, what that might look like, and how we're going to uh, work towards that over the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. Driving into this town, I was so surprised to see green lawns everywhere, and I was like, "Wow, how are they doing that?" It's because one of the things I really thought was interesting about the Castlemaine and Mildura as as sort of sort of parallel cities is that as climate change comes in we're going to expect our climate to become more like yours is now. And to have green lawns already, I mean, we don't have the massive Murray running through our town. <laughs> we don't have that luck. But we're already on water restrictions most of the year, through summer especially. And to see all of these beautiful green lawns was quite surprising. But then I realised people are probably using the river water. And and this is a topic we'll, we'll get into in a minute, is water usage in this region. But in terms of planting big trees that can then provide substantial shade, it allows the smaller plants and the ground cover to survive these brutal burning summers. We've got a few projects in central Victoria that are looking at greening as well and so it creates sort of like microclimates doesn't it?
2: Definitely, absolutely. So it's going to be absolutely essential going forward. I think that agriculture is going to have to be thinking yeah. about this and, and I think they are. Grape growers are aware that the climate is going to be changing and they're also making changes and, and calculations about how they're going to deal with that too. So when you talk about our homes and ourselves and, and us as humans and having comfortable lives also got to think about the sustainability of Mildura as a a township and as a region and agriculture has got a lot to do with that.
1: Look I think it brought acreage back to that as well there's always been discussion and I know the CMA do a lot of work with people who are interested and subsidies too to plant up their boundaries with four metres of natives for, for two reasons to stop that if you get the western wind coming in and you know it's been dry you can get we can get huge horrible dust storms here but if you plant up all your fence lines with natives, it sort of slows that down and gives a place where native animals can move to. So that's something that we've discussed. It hasn't come to fruition yet. But across the board, with that, I think someone said the other day, on average, we used to have six days over 40. It's projected that it might be 18 or 19 in the next little while per year. Yeah. So fresh fruit growers have their overhead sprinklers or their underhead sprinklers, but they have little misters on the top of some of the strainer posts as well, because if it gets over 40, they just turn them on, which drops because they're already adapting to how hot it is and how you know, growing fresh fruit or fresh grapes is a very viable industry so they can do that to make sure that they can protect their crops. So it's already happening in a way.
0: Yeah, Mm. people are already adapting. Absolutely. And I guess uh, that idea of creating natives on the boundaries is a windbreak but it also creates wildlife corridors and a bit of biodiversity and all of that stuff which is really
1: important too. Can I just say, point three of the climate emergency I thought was interesting, I just wanted to bring up, because we're going to have a climate emergency community reference group, so there's that second level. We're always going back to our community to make sure what we've chosen through, what we've heard, is redirected back to the public. So uh, the community consultation developed community-owned and activated climate change mitigation and adaptation strategies, so that's really important for us as a council to make sure that we continue to have the discussion, you know, and uh, bring the best science to the table, and then be directed by what our community want. That's so great. I think the difficult thing here, for particularly in in the Milwa from Muldura through to the South Australian border, is you can do everything right. You can use no-till. You can use organic. You can do whatever you want. But if you have, I think our average rainfall is uh, 250 mil a year, give or take. And I think in 1718 or 1819, I can't remember which two years it was, 87 mil. And hundred and ten. So that's the sort of pressure that is applied. So you can do everything you need to in the with the best of intentions. But if that climate continues to change, you know, our adaptability will have to match that to some level. Or it stops, you know. Yeah. So
0: And I imagine people's reliance on the river then becomes so important. Like so the Murray River is ginormous, beautiful mm-hmm. river running through. I mean, it's part of the Murray Darling Basin. I didn't an, an episode last year with some filmmakers who were local to central victoria but they had gone up to where the fishkill was and they did some beautiful interviews with the indigenous people and local farmers and other people have been affected by the amount of water that's extracted far north in queensland so the murray darling Basin is massive it's pretty much the entire eastern southeastern region of australia all of the rivers run into the same network and you guys are part of it
1: yeah yeah we're <laughs> You know, thirty k's from or thirty-five k's from Wentworth, where it's the junction of the Murray and the Darling. So where we're sitting would have been pre and weirs and Barrage It's just a huge delta. You know, I think just as an aside, I I went up. Uh, river with a heap of hydrologists and fish scientists in 2017 before the ABC pumped episode and we stood at the weir in Wentworth and Richard Minturn, who was at our our water forum the other day said on an average day over the Wentworth weir it's about 8,000 megalitres but in 2016-17 flood it was 110,000 a day but in 1956, the largest flood, once the river was regulated, was 360,000 megalitres a day. So the ephemerality and the, the variability of the system is absolutely phenomenal. So my grandfather had a mail run up to Menindee, and whenever there'd be a little cyclone, drop into central southern Queensland and dissipate you know all the old graziers and the People who love fishing or yabbies would go, oh, you know, we'll get up the Frenchman's and the Anna Branch in six to seven weeks because that would be the time that it'd come down. So it was more regular to be in flood than not, you know, it hardly ever dried. So there was like a clock, you know, oh, we've had the storm, we'll wait for the yabbies in six or seven weeks. So there's a real, and that's reflecting on my story, but that would have been reflected on the indigenous story for millennia.
2: What's, what Jason was just saying then about that water coming down, you have those storms in Queensland and you expect that water to come down, that simply hasn't been happening. Because
0: of how much is being extracted up there by industrial farming methods. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah.
2: basically. So that there's a lot of contention and and people saying, well, the, it's always been like that. Those particular river systems up there have always gone through periods of dry and wet, but the, the evidence simply doesn't support that argument. It has never been this dry and it has never occurred that there's been so much rain in Queensland and yet we still... Still get so little water coming down that particular waterway. Look, we're actually pretty lucky here on the Murray mm. because our water comes from the Snowy River. Yeah. comes comes from that area up there. So from the mountains yep. on the Mountain eastern fed coast, rather so. than floodplains. Yeah. yeah. So of course the the uh, connection that Jason was talking about is a little bit further sort of west of us. So the water that flows past us is coming from that mountainous uh, region. It but it, that water comes with its own difficulties mm. because. It's so controlled. So since the Hume Dam has been built up there, the water that comes down here is incredibly controlled. So the flood and dry patterns that this area is adapted to just don't happen anymore. So our wetlands are not getting the water that they need. we simply will not ever get the amount of water, even under normal flood conditions, those wetlands will never get the amount of water that they need, which is why we need to do things which the the Mali CMA is doing at the moment with the Victorian Floodplain Restoration Program, where they're putting infrastructure in so that they can actually get water to those wetlands, maintain the diversity, maintain those ecosystems, because there's no way that that water is ever going to be able to come down and, and do that naturally anymore. Yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting to me because obviously you are just one local council sitting on a river, but there's so many different councils and interest groups. And you you mentioned the CMA, so that's the Catchment Management Authority. And there's different catchment management authorities all over the place and they're government run, but they still have to negotiate with each other and with the government to try and figure out regulations. And one of the interesting things about that film that I mentioned earlier, When the River Runs Dry, it's called... The people talking about it said, you know, I'm a lawyer, I've looked into this and it's my job to understand all of the different factors playing into all of the different interest groups and everything. And it's, it's still really hard to get your head around who's got control of Well, if, of you, if you want
1: an interesting take on it, Richard Beasley QC, has just written a book called Dead in the Water. He was the second QC below Brett Walker in the South Australian Royal Commission into the Murray-Darling Basin. And his suggestion is basically the Water Act in 2007 created a scientific document with the best available science that that suggested that you needed between 4,600 and 7,900 gigalitres of water back to the environment for a healthy river. And then it was absolutely torn about by the politics of the country. So a little bit of paralleling between climate change and hydro-denialism, as he calls it, where you you begin to look at the science and wonder why we're so averse to actually taking science on board for what it is. So I recommend Dead in the Water. He's very blunt. He's very funny. He's a little bit cheeky. But if you wanted to read a book about a a pure disengagement with scientific evidence, that would be the one you'd want to pick up. Yeah, where the politics completely
0: overrides the evidence.
1: Well, you know, I think if you look back at the, the trading system that Rudd put in and then uh, we got rid of by the pressure of the carbon traded system, sorry, that that's another example of how, how easily our politics can overturn... Actual science, and I think it's a it's an interesting story. I'm getting a bit sociological okay. or meta on you. That's is good. That, <laughs> is that you know? I think we're almost at a re, we are at a really interesting point where we can embrace and we can take on board what the science says and adhere to it, and tell our tell our politicians, Jody and I included, that this is just not good enough. You don't need a lot of water to get an overbank flow to trigger that amazing engagement of the floodplains and all the nutrients coming back. and the the healthy river so it can be a working river but it also needs flow if you don't have flow the cod and perch that represent in the the south australian murray and the new south and vic murray come from the darling because it's unregulated water when it comes down so they still breed there's still been great breeding opportunities in the last six years for cod and perch on that minimal amount of water and then they they go up and down the the murray at at a rate of knots have you heard of the lamprey no. The lamprey is – sorry, I'm, to- on, you, I'm, on my, on. I'm on my pet topic now. So the lamprey is this funny little long eel-looking fish that lives out in the southern ocean but breeds and has its, has its fishlings. Yeah,
0: eellings. eelings. Oh, fingerlings. Fingerlings, fingerlings. there yeah. you go. Are they
2: fingerlings? I believe And they so are. they
1: come from the southern ocean all the way to Yarrawonga wow. and breed. But when all the locks and weirs put in, they stop doing that. We've spent $13 billion on the Murray-Darling Basin plan, and yet there's no water in the Darling. So, you know, there's huge questions to be asked. They were asked in the South Australian Royal Commission, but why did the federal government not want to go? They didn't go. They said, we're not coming. They sent Mr Walker. They didn't go to the commission. they, They refused to go, and they were going to take the Royal Commission to court to prove that they didn't want to present. So why would they do that?
0: I don't understand the legalities of a Royal Commission, but I think the point of them, isn't it, is to hold everyone accountable. So they accountable. challenge
1: the point of the legality of the nation. That's what I'm saying. So, you know, there's a lot going on. A lot more could go on, but read Dead in the Water. It's it's interesting.
0: But it's also, like, I, I just to get political here, and I understand that you hold office and you may not be able to comment, but... The anti-corruption watchdog and the need for that at a federal level, I think these stories over and over and over again in so many different ways from fracking gas and keeping coal fire alive and all of this water stuff all points to the same thing, which is who has interest, financial interest in making these systems stay
1: so one more little political thing. Did you, are you familiar with the, the disallowance of the 70 gigalitres in 2018? So in, in the structures of the basin plan, there was 70 gigalitres that was meant to go to the environment in the northern connected basin. So lobbyists lobbied the government and they voted to take it away from the environment and give it back to agriculture and horticulture. That was at the start of 18. That's 70 gigalitres. It mightn't have stopped the fish kills, but any amount of water would have been better than what it didn't come through. So it's not just one incident of of a disconnect, it's many incidents. So you're right.
2: And look, just recently we had Keith Pitt came up here. He is the Federal Water, Federal water Minister and he and and Webster did a tour around and, and showed him what's going on in this region so it was great to have him. But as he left, he said that he was withdrawing the on-farm water-saving mechanisms and that all water-saving mechanisms would now be done off-farm and that there would be no no water buybacks to re- return water to the environment. So that's why these sort of political decisions are why it's so important to start thinking about how we're going to get water to the environment in another way, hence the infrastructure programs that we've, we have happening on the Victorian side of the border with, with getting water into those very important ecosystems there. But they also save water for farming as well. So look, as we've been talking about, farming is going to be affected by climate change. They are going to be less rain events they are going to be taking more Water out of the river, so they do need to have enough water to be for us to be able to be a food and fibre producer. So, we have to be innovative about how we are getting water to the environments that need it and water to those farmers as well. We, you know, the complexity of it is enormous. The politics, the climate change, yeah. water trading we haven't even touched on water trading, so yeah, but there are some really awesome people out there making some really great headway in finding that balance. The balance is there. We've just got to find it.
0: So when you were saying water saving on farms, that prevents farmers hoarding water, which is probably good, but it also means that they're going to draw from the river more.
2: No, I'm not necessarily talking about floodplain harvesting when I'm talking about water saving. I'm talking about things that farmers can do on their own farm that will reduce the amount of water that they have to draw from the river. So
1: They'll become more efficient. So they're mm. literally
2: efficiency programs. That, so they're preventing efficiency programs, is that what you're saying? What they're saying was that the water efficiency programs didn't produce the amount of environmental outcomes that they thought they would. So all the monitoring and measuring and evaluation that they've done haven't produced the amount of water back to the environment that they thought. It's actually ne- negligible in the
1: end. There's an interesting overlay of that, that the Water Act is a scientific document. Richard Beasley says it's, it's. he's amazed that it actually got voted through because it's the most scientific document Australian <laughs> government's ever passed. But from then on, in our region alone, there's probably been another 11,000 hectares of permanent plantings done. So there's all these other things going on in the background. And with the diminishing intakes, it looks like a perfect storm, remembering that we had the millennial drought, which most people reckon started in 1997. So we had nearly 13 years of very low intakes. Now, if imagine when when the next drought comes, it's not if. And we've got all those extra permanent plantings and we've got lower intakes into the system and then we've got more people f- vying for the water. What does the price of water look like? I think it's about $6,000 a megalitre. To buy for permanent, it's probably four four fifty to buy temporary. And who what do, do you I-
0: buy that from the government?
1: Uh, no, you can buy it from anyone. So, oh, but, so people uh, have water, water rights. Yeah. So and w- then
0: that's water trading is yeah, when you buy water right? of someone else.
1: Prior to when I grew up, I grew up on a market garden over in, in Golgol on the other side of the river, and Dad's land and water were attached, so he had fifteen acres and, and eighty megs. Never even it wasn't a tradable thing. And then there was a desire to get more efficiency, so the water wanted to go to the highest return use. So that's why almonds and cotton that are coming in and then they've commodified separated land and water and commodified water remembering there was probably 30 percent of water that was never used because it had a value to the environment but then it became a commodified value so on top of the diminishing (laughs) the diminishing intakes on top of the 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 hyper growth that we've had we've had the commodification of water that's made every drop worth something and everybody scrambled for that so we're, we're kind of sailing towards a perfect storm, you know, in the Murray as well, only on a, if we have a really dry period. You know, if we have La Niña's... Which we will, obviously. Of course, yeah. you know, I think... And that's the interesting thing too. If you look at uh, some of the data from the hydrologists, the river had a heartbeat, you know. All that would change would be the volume. So it might be 7 GL this year and 14 next year and, th- you know, 12 next year and then two. But it, it, it always flowed. I think one of the other bits of data... Sorry for going on about water. If if our CEO was here, she'd just giggle, he's talking about water again. You know, I toured the barrages the other day, which was absolutely phenomenal. So what's a barrage? The barrage is just like a lock, like a heap of doors that separate the saline water of the Coorong with the mouth of the Murray. So there's 530 of them. So prior to locks and weirs and barrages, on average, annually, there used to be 16,000 gigalitres of water would go out of the mouth of the Murray a year, on average. So it'd go higher, maybe 40 go lower drought year maybe six in the last 10 years since some of the decisions have been made around the environment there's only 650 gigalitres go through the barrages so the river doesn't flow now the way to have a healthy river and how have, so what
0: is that in terms of, like is that half or oh I it's like quarter or like i wasn't well, paying six, attention to the number 16 to <laughs> sixteen thousand to
1: 650 it's was yeah. that one percent so it's whatever. a fraction. It's yeah. a fraction of yeah. so one percent. That is amazing, and that's that. That's that true politicisation because you can come to certain parts of the basin and they will blame the barrages for no one else getting any water. Mm. But if you say, well, let's take out the barrages and the locks and the weirs, and you can only pump when the natural system lets you. Not that I'm advocating that because yeah, it yeah. has been a successful. Then you working can't control yet. the flow exactly, yeah. but you can you can have a version that will keep the river healthy, mm. and in a climate change real world it shouldn't be a cap on water it should be a cap on what are you growing and how you're growing it um, why are
0: we going cotton here yeah. why are we growing rice in australia
1: well, I'm sure the Indigenous people said, why are you growing those funny red and green things that you make wine out of? Why are you growing them? So just to, just to put a bit of a, a, a yes. deeper narrative on it, why aren't we growing, you know, acacias? Or I think you can make avgas out of the Mallee plant, so, or oils anyway.
2: We, we don't tell farmers what they can put in the ground here. We, we don't tell farmers what they can make money out of. And we don't tell farmers that they have to plant certain crops because we allow the market to decide what makes money and what they can grow. And we also allow international
0: corporations to have massive amounts of land and grow things well, the way regulation.
2: Well, the way the water market ha- is working, and, and as Jason desc- described, it actually favours those massive, you know, mega agricultural uh, farmers because to them, the water price is affordable. And if, if you it's the cost of business. It's the cost yeah. of business. So that when you go down to your local farmer who's been farming his uh, land for generations, he struggles to buy water to uh, continue farming.
0: For Mildura... Into the future, if you're going to be greening your streets and needing to water those trees and keeping your local agribusinesses alive, what do you need to do as a council? Do you advocate at a political level? What's your power here?
2: Yeah, uh, advocacy is the thing for the council here and also joining together with other local councils that have uh, similar issues.
1: The Murray, Murray River Group of Councils, which advocate together on energy transition, water, tourism, and digital connectivity, so that could cross the board to anything. But we, as in that group, only picks four things, so we can be committed to those four things. Because sometimes when there's too many topics on the table, you can get lost.
0: And is that both sides of the border?
1: No, they have That's Ram- all Victoria. All Victoria, and then that we, the equivalent is Ramjos on the on the New South Wales side. It's about information, good information, the trust in science, and really trying to have a bit of a picture of how where we might end up. where we might be we're actually currently building our council plan but also doing vision 2040 so we're sort of encouraging people to say well what will it look like after another 19 years of climate change or expansion they're really big questions though because culturally we are a coloniser nation we do want to grow we want to do more but if there's an outer limit of what you can do that's when the big questions have to come in how do we do it how do we maintain it
2: well, when, when we're talking about things like greening Mildura and planting trees, it's those initial stages where demands on resources, cash and, and water in in this particular instance, is going to be at its greatest. So in those initial stages, yes. First couple of years. First couple of years, it's intensive. They will require a lot of water. But when those trees are established, then that sort of in, intensive amount of input they have to put in into them will start to drop off a little bit. They'll start to maintain themselves. So, yeah, look, it can, it can look intensive. In the beginning, but the payback that you get from investing in something like that now is going to be massive in the future.
1: So, but I think they go, I think they really work together. This transition, for me, is that you know we've we've over focused on the water and trying to get as much out of it as we can. So there needs to be a step away and a, and a recalibration. And we've underutilized the sun. I'm making a metaphoric statement. This you know it's not that difficult. It shouldn't be that difficult to change what we do and how we do it, particularly with the great amount of information we have around us. Our councilors hit higher than it has should over and over again because we've had good counsellors, we've had great staff and good leadership to say, what's it actually like to live on the edge of the desert, you know, when you can have minus three in June and 47 in January? It's Don Watson's book, The Bush, talks about the Milawa, and he says even Indigenous Australians didn't really live or do anything out there. They'd go through it and they could survive off it, but it wasn't something where they would put a permanent camp near a billabong or near the river or a lake.
2: Did you come up with that great quote the other day that somebody said, nobody really knows who created the Mallee, but the devil is strongly suspected.
1: Uh, Ali, <laughs> our, our, our state member, Ali, Ali Kappa Kappa. said that the that other was day. That great. Yeah, thanks, Ali. So, so, and once again, this ties into maybe why it's difficult to take on the new attitudes or aspects is we, we are very resilient. Muldura was an irrigation colony that failed within the first five years that was promised so much by the state government and got nothing. You know, there's always the, the concept of the Bendigo line, you know, 100 k's north of Bendigo on an arc. Nothing ever comes further than that. That's changing now because we're becoming very vocal and we're saying, well... How do we fit into the federation? How the hell do we fit into the state for a start? What's that other one? Glarus Bar- and rang up Dan Andrews and said, Dan, is Mildura in Victoria? He said, no, 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 I ring Steve Marshall. I think it's in South Australia. So there's all these... Really? Hit- no, this is a joke. Oh. It's a total joke. So.
2: <laughs> that's, how mis- that's how misinformation gets out there. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm I'm talking about that because like anywhere in rural Australia, the the hub and spoke method of of how Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane worked and worked well, still has deficiencies within that.
0: So you mentioned the Indigenous people and I'm always interested in this interplay with the Australian environment and how we want to grow whatever we want to grow regardless of actually what the environment is. So can you tell me a little bit about who the local Indigenous group are?
1: Yep. So we've just, in the last little while, there's the people of the Mali So on the New South Wales side, it's the Barkindji. It's the Latchi Latchi, the Neri Neri and the Warragai. So there's a few. We have a, a really good RAP, Reconciliation Action Plan. Plan. You know, I, when I grew up in Golgol in the early 70s, there were still Aboriginal people living on the river in unpowered sites. You know, I'm 51. And I find it quite emotive to talk about because there is a, a genuine lack of understanding that we've been here for 238 years and Indigenous Australians have been here for 2,600 generations, if not more. So, the Indigenous community in Mildura works really hard to be involved and to have a say. We try and foster that as much as we can, but they have difficulties within their own communities as well. And it's getting better, but there's always more work that could be done to, to engage the Indigenous community. And I can't imagine, it's it's tough just to live here as someone who's got all the best opportunities other than the the disadvantage that Indigenous Australians continually come up against?
2: There's different points of view in the Indigenous community. It's the same as there is in any community. When it comes to consultation about water and about what happens with water, it's very heavily skewed towards irrigators despite the fact that the 2007 Water Act and the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is designed to deliver water to the environment, politics and power intersect with that and we we get the complex outcomes that we have. Now, Indigenous people simply, I'm not going to speak for them, I I recommend that that you find somebody, but look, they're a minority and the things that they want to use the water for might not necessarily gel with what the majority of people want to use that water for and in the end Despite the fact that there's a consultation that goes on, I'm afraid that sometimes their voices get lost.
0: And when you think about the fact that we just came in here and took it all and then set up these systems it seems so outrageous
2: nobody understands how these river systems would run better than the people that have lived next to them for 40,000 years and then, then
1: overlaid all the engineering works that we've done on those rivers to make them working rivers Richard Beasley talks about you know the, the indigenous Australians they were about sharing you didn't take too much you didn't show off or steal or what have you and you made sure that the people upstream, the people upstream did the right thing and the people downstream did the right thing in the middle you got your little bit as well aboriginal
2: people are absolutely capable of their own engineering feats they're the one of the the oldest engineering feats known on the planet planet, you know aboriginal people did it first but they did it in a way that was sustainable they did it in a way that they weren't taking too much and that they allowed everything that was in that river to have its place and to have its time and they did it in concert with the natural rhythms of that place we could learn a few things. Yeah, we sure could.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think one of the big things for me is when the Uluru Statement from the heart was put to what? the federal government, yeah. yeah, it was just ignored and it had taken five years to put together and it was a document that got all Indigenous people involved and on board and, and all Indigenous Australians have been asking for since colonisation is to have a, a voice, not in and of the chamber, but to the chamber, which there is a clear difference because that was the scare tactic used. Oh, you can't have another chamber in the house. No, it's just a voice. You know, yeah, six seemed to work pretty well from the 90s and, and until it was disbanded. So. How do, we, how do we as a local government, I think we're doing a reasonable job, engage with the Indigenous peoples, but that overall understanding of that longest connection with the land, of the nature of the Dreamtime and what we take from Indigenous people that we continually overlook. Indigenous humour, they say, resonates through Australian society like you've never seen, but we take it as our own. So there's there's other little things that if we embraced Indigeneity for what it was and, and understood their deeper resilience and ability to survive, we may well make better decisions. Absolutely.
0: Thanks. So before we go, I just wanted (laughs) a little bit of um, background from you both. What what brought you here? How how did you, a Tyler, become the mayor? (laughs) (laughs) Look,
1: uh, you know, I was born and bred in Golgol, Italian father, Anglo mum, grew up in the 70s when I copped a little bit of grief but not much and I was just always interested as I said I used to go to the church in St Michael's in Baronga and we'd come out and look over a floodplain after praying to God and there was this ineffable feeling out there in the bush that no one ever really wanted to talk about but it was clearly there could have gone on in school but just didn't have couldn't concentrate in a classroom and then went off and did a trade and then traveled like did a heap of travel all over the country and internationally and then came back here and started you know talking a bit too much and having too many opinions and people would say well just do (laughs) just do something about it so my wife has a really big giggle i was going to run in the 2012 council election and i kept on saying oh yeah I'll go and sign up tomorrow. I'll go and sign up tomorrow. And she said, you know, it's going to close because she knows that sometimes I don't get to what I said I'm going to do. I'll sign up tomorrow. And she said, you know, it's going to close tomorrow. I said, look, I'll go in at one o'clock and sign up. So I went in at one o'clock and the doors closed at 12. So I missed the application. (laughs) So then I ran the next time, got in. Became deputy mayor but yeah just have a real deep concern for the region want to have a better understanding of how we make it sustainable
0: you came in with sustainability in mind and yep. the environment yep. and that was a large and, part of it water what and you power yeah yeah was
1: pretty much and transparency all that sort of stuff as well but yeah it's and and, and really lucky to be doing it in not my hometown because I've lived over the river until I was 23 and then travelled and then bought here 20 years ago it's just really nice to know that this is a great place and there's a lot going on and we have good people around us but there's there's work to do whether it's around engagement with the indigenous population energy transition or water my three favorite ones there's other stuff like that but some of the work's being done. How do we do the rest of it and, and be considerate about that?
2: And what about you, Jodie? Well, I guess it's been a, a bit of a lifelong passion of the environment, watching it change, seeing how it's affected by human activity, just just a lifelong interest and passion for me, the environment. Moving to Mildura seven years ago brought home to me in graphic colour how the river is being decimated and what an impact people and society has had on that. So I grew up in in South Australia, moved away and became a geologist and moved here to work with a, a mining company called Crystal Mining. And actually quite happy to work with a sand mining company because sand miners have some of the best rehabilitation methods and, and success of any other mining company. So not too bad of a, of a mining company to work for if you're going to have, have a love for the <laughs> environment. But look, the, the issues that are apparent here, I'd never been aware of them before. And I, th- I think that if you don't live on, on the banks of these rivers, you, you take your water for granted. If you turn on a tap and the water's coming out of it, you just expect that to happen. You think of that as your right for that to happen, and in some ways it is. But I think that we can expect that that's going to happen less and less. We've already had situations in towns in Tamworth and in Dubbo and in, in other places where they've had to truck water into those places because they're natural sources of water.
1: Pooncary and Menindee even closer.
2: Pooncary and Menindee closer to home, where their natural sources of water simply aren't available to them anymore. And that's as a direct result of over Use over allocation and climate change so we really have to as much as possible bring these issues to a wider audience to all those people out there in the capital cities turning on their taps and watching the water come out it's you need to know this is resource that's in danger so that's you know this is something that sort of came to my it really in my discussions with Jason I think because he's he was passionate about water and we met through our kids who went to school together so I met Jason's partner and of course the the political discussions ensued ensued yes (laughs) late into (laughs) the night (laughs) very quickly after that I come from a political sort of family so my brother actually ran against Barnaby Joyce in his seat going back a couple of elections ago David Ewings so yeah a bit of a political background and once again it's a bit of a case of well do something, you know, if you're going to have a stop all, gas bagging, stop gas bagging. Well, and you do never stop gas bagging, it's you just <laughs> yeah, gas bag somewhere. Else. This is true, <laughs> Sorry. yeah. But look, I got in on a gender equity kind of basis. There was a big push for more women in local council, so the women that put up their hands this time to run through fabulous women really really great range from women with a strong desire to make positive change in the region didn't get everybody up unfortunately but really proud of the women that did get in but
0: there was a conscious effort of women to say hey we need more women we should all run
2: Absolutely and we all supported each other all through that. So there was some ups and downs for a couple of the women candidates but no. It's there never going to be easy is It's that? never <laughs> going to be easy for a female candidate. So look the women that did get in that's fantastic and they're making a, a big impact already which is good to see. But the other thing was accountability and transparency. There was a feeling in the electorate that perhaps council wasn't necessarily listening or taking a lot of notice of what the, the, the public feeling was and I think that there has been a really good conscious effort on behalf of council to understand that and to change that and I think the other thing is to there was some situations in council where I thought that as far as the I'm going to be out there the conduct of some of the councillors I I didn't think so it's the reputation of council we have to have the highest level of integrity in our council so that people will look to the council and say we are proud to have that those people in that council representing us and I looked at the council at that time and I couldn't see that and I wanted to make sure that if I got in that I would be that person that I would hope to see representing me in council that's great thanks
0: that's cool is there anything else you guys want to say about Mildura or the region or sustainability or climate change
2: I wanted to go back to what you were saying about um, community groups and the the grassroots community groups that we've got here. So we've just recently added to policy on the environment some words about plastics and tackling single-use plastics in the region. And at the grassroots level, we've got a, a group of people and they've just got a grant to work together to make that happen from the grassroots level. So we've got multiple levels of change happening in this region. So it's great that council is reflecting that and that we're here to facilitate those grassroots movements that want to make change here. So, yeah, really pleased to see that.
1: If Just for me, I think it's, a, it's an indication of how things can change and when you're politically aware you can... Whether, you know, gently at the start and then with an avalanche later, actually through your voting habits and how you take on your information, actually change what's going on around you. And I think our community's absolutely primed to just have that second glance and see what's going on. That's great. I really like that. That's great.
0: All right. Thanks, guys. I think that'll do. Thanks, Alison. It's been <laughs> Thank awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, we don't like talking. <laughs> I can tell. I really had to drag it out of you. <laughs> That was the mayor of Mildura Rural City Council, Jason Modica, and councillor for the environment and sustainability, Jody Reynolds. Links to many of the things discussed, including the previous episodes related to this episode, can be found in the show notes on the podcast and at saltgrasspodcast.com. The next few episodes are also going to be from up in the same region. I'll share a chat I had recently with two people from the Aboriginal Corporation, the first people of the Millewa and also we'll take a tour of the local community garden recorded back in March. So stay tuned for those interviews. For those of you listening on Main FM and 3MDR, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app. If you can't find Saltgrass on your podcasting app, please let me know and we'll see what we can do to make it available there. You can contact us through the website at saltgrasspodcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt. 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 Grass Grassroots. 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 Grassroots.
1: Grassroots.
0: Grassroots. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.